Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Almost every organization would benefit from having better processes, but for most companies, getting standard operating procedures, handbooks, and other materials documented is firmly in the category of important but never urgent. The barriers to getting that content created, organized, and in front of the right people at the right time is no small feat. Trainual is trying to help with that, a software platform that makes the creation and management of SOPs and other training materials dead simple. Trainual has scaled to thousands of organizations all over the country. And in this conversation with Trainual founder Chris Ronzio, we discuss the origins of Trainual, some best practices for documenting processes inside of an organization, lessons that he's learned about building and scaling a SaaS business, how he thinks about community building, deliberately crafting culture, and much, much more. Chris is a fascinating guy. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. And with that, let's go to Chris. All right, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Really excited to do this. Systems and system design has been something that's been close to my heart for a number of years as we've been leveling up at Manifold. So excited to get into this. Nice. Obviously, we're going to get into Trainual, but I'd love to talk about the journey because my understanding is that some of your previous business experience led to the epiphany that led to Trainual. Is that accurate? A hundred percent. So how, how far back do you want to go? The beginning? <laughs> well, I mean, not like, I don't know, to, to, to the degree Earth, that it's relevant. Yeah. Let's go back to, to whatever Earth you think Earth. is most relevant. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it really starts in my first company. So when I was 14, I was in high school, I started this video production company that did live youth sporting events. And so okay. I started it with a partner, a friend of mine, and we were just initially doing soccer games and the talent show at our school and cheerleading and dance tournaments and things like that. But as high school went on and into college, we started doing, you know, state level events and regional championships. And I grew up in the Boston area. So by the time I was in college, we're all around New England. And while I was in school, I needed to find crews that could do the events that I would book. And so the whole business was you'd find sports organizations you'd contract with them to do all of their tournaments or games or whatever they had. And then I needed crews to show up and film those events. And so while I was in school, I needed to train other people to show up and look and feel and act like they were part of my business and part of my brand. And so from a young age, I was packaging together what my business is all about to train other people to get them up to speed and then yeah. trying to operate almost like a, a franchise in, a, a, in some way and have operations that were just totally dialed in. So this kept going all through college. By the time I graduated, I had an office in Boston, employees working there, a fulfillment center, and we had started to do events across the US. So I built this directory up of hundreds and hundreds of camera operators in every major metropolitan area so that they were fully trained and ready to go for anywhere that we would book events. And I ran that business for 12 years before I turned it over to my operations director. He became president and then a year later sold the company. So I had the amazing experience as really a kid of yeah. learning about the importance of systems and operations and, and process and SOPs as I was kind of fumbling through building my own business. And at the end of that experience, when I looked back, I realized how unique that was, that I had put so much attention into fine tuning the systems of how we ship gear from one event to the next and dress codes of what people would wear and processes for how we would get video literally from the jumbotron into the hands of customers walking out the door in 10 or 15 minutes. It was dialed in. That was what was unique about my business. And so that became my next business, which was systems and processes and operations consulting. So I yeah. built this little consulting firm and I'll skip through the details here. But basically the epiphany was as I was working with so many other businesses, they wanted to package together who they were, what they did, how they did it, what they were all about so that their businesses could scale or feel turnkey like mine was. So that's the type of work that we were doing for them. And that's what led to Trainual, which is a online software, a training manual kind of platform, one place for your, your business playbook. Wow. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, did you go to, did you go to college through this process too? Or did you, how did I did. I did. I went to a business school Yeah, called B Bentley University. It's a school outside of Boston. What was so cool is I was running my video business. And yeah. while I was in school, I would have these professors that were teaching accounting or marketing or whatever. And they would let me use my business for all my class projects. Wow. And so it was like I would learn, I would get an assignment, I get a project and I would just 
build out the marketing plan for my company or I would like create the the P&L or the income statement for for my my business and turn that in as my 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 homework <laughs> but it was advancing my business so it was yeah. it was a pretty good deal that's really fascinating. So, okay, so you decide that you want to start basically a software business. Did you have a background in software or how did you go about it? It sounds like you were, I always hate the word non-technical because it implies you weren't a programmer. So no. what was what was the MVP of this thing like? like you, how did you go from an idea to first iteration of this thing? Yeah, so I had had glimpses of software. I had exposure to software. So once in my video company, toward the end of the business, we hired a contractor to build a software that would connect our e-commerce website to our network hard drives and the DVD robots. So basically, anytime someone ordered off our website, every half hour it would batch those orders and it would send a message to our network hard drives to say, these image files from these DVDs, print those. And so then at the end of the day, we'd have a stack of 50, 60, 70 discs and an intern or something would would ship those out. And so that was like an exposure to, wow, software is magic. It's cool yeah. that you can like dream something up and it exists. And then when I started consulting, the operations work I was doing, I was streamlining people's processes and I had some ideas for, well, why don't we design a custom tool that cuts out a ton of steps for your business? And so I had exposure to just hiring contractors. So when the idea for Trainual happened, it was through some of those contractors that I said, there's, there's just this basic platform that people could house their roles and responsibilities in the company and their basic onboarding. So I downloaded a program. It was called Mockups. I think it's still out there. And I found some theme kits, some SaaS like theme kits. Yeah. And I just put a few weeks into designing the first version of Trainual by just slapping rectangles in, in rectangles and <laughs> making yeah. buttons. Yeah. That, and that's how it came to life. That's crazy. That's so cool. I, I'd love to get in kind of the, the, the business building side of things. But before that, I'd love to just hear a little bit about you've been in this world for a long time. So it seems like you probably have sort of like a unified theory, I guess, of system design and things like that. And from what I've seen, both with, with our, as we grew our business and then through some of the investments that we've made, some of the consistent problems that we've seen are like the lift on getting them Doc, getting stuff documented in the first place is pretty material. Yeah. People don't want to do it. It's, it's always, it's important, but never urgent. Two is like the training aspect of it, making sure that people do it. So not just like a one-time thing, but like, how do you ensure retention of the material? And then three is like almost like a paper, like an auditing kind of like, how do you ensure compliance with the process? Cause as soon as you learn that you don't have to follow the process, you won't and you cut corners, all kinds of stuff. So like, I would imagine you've seen all of those problems and all that stuff factored into and a dozen other problems that I'm not even thinking of. Like what, what were you trying to solve for with Trainual? What were the common problems that you saw and how is it sort of the killer app for doing this kind of stuff? So the thing we're trying to solve for is that information in a business as you grow is either stuck in your head, scattered across all your people or fragments of it are scattered across documents and in folders and on on hard drives. And if you really want to scale a business, you have to operate consistently. That was what I learned through my video company was that you can't show up at every different event and do them in a different way. That's would destroy your brand. You have to do things consistently. And so in building a business, you have to do things consistently. And if you recognize that it's our risk to have this info scattered and misplaced everywhere, then the problem for us to solve was centralizing all of that. Let's at least collect and gather all of this knowledge for people to have at their fingertips when they need it. So mm -hmm. mobile app, web app, all of that, wherever you need it, you can find this and it's all consistently laid out. It's not a bunch of different documents with crazy colors and headers and different things. It's just all standardized. It's easy to find. It's all in one place. That was the first problem was just centralizing this. Yeah. So when you mention how it's never urgent and it's a lift, it's hard to get started. The, the, the point I would make is you got to think, what's in it for me? 
Like, why am I doing this? Why, why would I even do this work? And if you don't have some big aspirations of we're trying to open a second location, we're trying to expand our business into this other vertical. I'm trying to get stuff off of my plate so that I can take on new challenges that I need to focus on to grow us. You've got to have some why, because that why is what propels you to do the work. It's what makes you write things down so you can hand it off to someone else. So I have this framework, this thing we trademarked, do it, document it, delegate it. Because I believe in every role, every responsibility, and every business, that's the process you follow. Where at first, anytime you're doing something, it's an experiment. You're testing it out. You're trying to figure out, is this the best way to do it? Does this work? Do I need to tweak it over here? And as you experiment and you refine how you do something, then you start to think, okay, I'm doing it the same way, the same way, the same way. And now it feels like a job. And entrepreneurs, people that are growth oriented or builders, you don't want to do the same thing over and over. You want to solve one problem and move on to the next. And so once you've solved that problem, that's when you want to document it. That's when you want to write down the instructions so that you can delegate it. So you do it, then document it, then delegate it. And by writing down instructions, you're freeing yourself up. You're buying back bandwidth so that you can tackle something else. So you've got to have that motivation of understanding why do I want to get this off my plate? What does documenting this mean? That's what will inspire or motivate you to actually put in the work at the beginning. And then to your point about how do you get people to actually go through it, the training, the experience? Well, again, what's in it for me? Like, why would they care about that? They have to know that if they can adequately do this work and they can do it as well as you, that's how they can get promoted. That's how they take the next step in in their career is by understanding that this is the current best practice for the company and then challenging themselves to create a new best practice to level things up and then Mm -hmm. eventually document how they're doing it to pass down to the next person. So it becomes this culture of just figuring out what's the current best way to do something. Now let me hand it off and pass it off to someone else so it's a challenge for them and then challenge them to come up with the next best way of doing something. I'd be curious to hear, so I have friends that have small businesses and things like that, and it seems like they may have read like the E-Myth or something like that, but they usually don't start this process or this journey until, uh, there it is, yeah, (laughs) love that book. (laughs) <laughs> my dad gave that to me, talking about my dad gave that to me in high school. And I was like, I, thanks dad. I don't know why I wasn't, I wasn't as ambitious as you were, but uh, yeah, an amazing book. But like my, my, from what I've observed, it seems like it, like small businesses don't tend to do this until there's pain. Um, mm-hmm. almost like it's not, not too late, but like they probably would have wished they'd done it sooner. And then also like startups, there's these like tropes around, like, especially like pre-product market fit when you don't know what the thing is this idea around prematurely scaling or documenting before you figured out that you've achieved product market fit. Like when you're advising friends or you're advising, I don't know if you do any angel investing or things like that, but like when you're giving advice to other people around the right time to start a journey like this, what do you, what do you tell them? Do you do it from the very beginning or is there a more appropriate time? No, I, th- I think you do it once there's some business that exists. Again, do it, document it, delegate it. Like you've got to have some existing thing that you want to write down. But a lot of people, when they think of documentation, they think of process. They think of their operations. And I believe that you can document more than just process in a business. I think that the playbook, the entire playbook for your business starts with the profile of your company. It's who are you as a business? What market are you in? What customer are you trying to serve? And to your point about product market fit, it's what is your market? Who are you as a, what's your, what is your reason for, for showing up your mission, your vision, your values? Because even if you pivot what the company sells, you maintain a lot of that foundation, the DNA of who you are as a business. And so you document that because that is important to train everyone that comes into your operation that you work Mm -hmm. with. And then you start to document roles and responsibilities and Mm -hmm. everything about your people and your teams. Because again, if I was to join a business, so much of getting oriented and learning about the business is where do I fit in? Who do I work with on a daily basis? Who do I go to for different types of questions? Who runs each part of the company? That is documentation. And by packaging that up, again, that's something you can do early in a business as you go. That You don't have to wait till you've got everything figured out. And then there's also your, your policies. You've got a handbook. You've got certain legal policies. You may have benefits. You may have just cultural norms of like what's okay and not okay here. All that can exist 
before you've dialed in and figured out every process for how you scale. And so I think there's a lot of fundamental things to document before you get into the actual processes. And then when it comes to process, you may want to document one task, two tasks, a couple of different responsibilities, because those are areas of incons- possible inconsistency in your business, or a lot of people do these things. And so we don't want to mess them up. That's yeah. where you should focus. You're not going to document everything out of the gates. Got it. So it sounds like, you know, from, from like a talent and onboarding perspective, like that's a big win being able to consistently communicate the vision for the business, where we're going, what our values are, why we exist, and then doing some kind of Pareto analysis on what, what are the kind of the critical 20% of processes that will have the biggest impact either in terms of minimizing team frustration or maximizing customer happiness. Is that fair? Yeah. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. So what are we having to do over and over and over again? Let's focus Mm -hmm. on documenting that first. Absolutely. Got it. What have you found in terms of either with clients or as you've implemented, I'm I'm assuming you've implemented this inside your own organization in terms of like the retention piece of it. So again, like you do this training as I've just reading about behavior change and performance improvement and things like that. There's like a, it's, it's, there's like an optimal cadence to like maximize retention or to to maximize the likelihood that a new a new behavior sticks. Is there anything that you found in terms of best practices there in terms of like, okay, we've unveiled this initiative or hey, we've documented this process and we've trained people on it. Um, there is a cadence for review to make sure that they are still doing it the way that kind of we've designed it to do it. Have you seen anything along those lines? Yeah. So, I mean, we've got some built in triggers in our application specifically for this. Like if you haven't touched content in a while, it'll remind the person that created it to make sure that it's still up to date. If as a a user, you've been assigned something, you can make any piece of content in our application kind of expire. So it reminds the person to go through it again in 47 days or 94 days or two years or whatever it is that, that you want as a cadence. But I think, again, it comes down to why do I need this information? And Mm -hmm. if you as a user need to access certain information on demand because you're doing something in the business you haven't done in a while, then at least you have a place where you can go and look up and reference that information. So the retention, the stickiness and the value of the content actually depends on just making useful content of stuff that people need to know. I was staying at the office late the other day, last night, actually, and I hadn't been here that late in a while. And as I'm walking out, I was like, how do I set the alarm again? I, I totally forget. <laughs> so I'm standing at the door and I fire up the app and I look for the alarm thing and it's like, oh, there it is with the screenshots. So I set the yeah. alarm and I walk out. But it's not forcefully training people on stuff that they don't need to know right now. It's having the information available for when they do need it. So it's easily retrievable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Have you found anything in terms of like modalities for documentation that are better than other? Like sometimes you'll see, especially like with employee handbooks and things like that, people try to get cute with it and do like GIFs and things like that or using Loom to record a certain software, which makes a lot of sense. But like, is there anything that you've seen in terms of like maximizing the effectiveness of documentation or best practices that people should keep in mind? It depends on what you're trying to train. So for something that's like like a handbook, like you you probably don't want to fire up a loom and riff on your harassment policies. Like you you probably want that one in writing. And so so write that one down. But if it's like teaching people about you're requesting time off or your vacation or your sabbatical or some benefits, throw in the the gifts and make it fun. If it's a walkthrough for how to process payroll, then a screen recording of actually doing that in the application can be most beneficial. If Mm -hmm. it is training someone on how to load appropriately load the equipment into your van, then a series of images with like some arrows on them is, is most useful. So I think it really just depends on what you're trying to train, but you want to mix it up. If you've got a playbook or or your documentation is all text, then people just be so bored. A lot of people don't learn like that. And so if you have some combination of video and audio and slide decks and PDFs and and it keeps it fun. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I said, I mean, it's not, I would assume you're a customer or a user. How has that I would imagine that there are some some definite pros in terms of being able to dog food your own product as you build it and forming roadmap and things like that. But maybe there are some downsides as well. Like can, can, what have you learned maybe about using your to the degree that you've used your company as a as a set of inputs to inform product development? Like what have maybe you learned about like the pros and cons of doing that 
and how to do it well. So for the longest time, I would tell our product team, like, we are our customer. If I want this, everybody wants this, right? Right. right. And for, for a long time, I think they, they listened to that. But then little by little, they started saying, but are we? <laughs> like, are you sure? And they had, rightfully so. So like when we launched, we always thought Trainuals for small growing businesses, small to mid-sized businesses. We would put brackets on five employees to 500 employees. That was the loose number. It was like, you're big enough to be more than just a room full of friends. And you're small enough that you're not yet in like a skyscraper with seven layers of management. That was our, our brackets. But as we've grown, we see that our biggest power users are maybe between the 10 and 100 employees. And now that we have over 100 employees, it starts to be like, well, are we needing functionality that the majority of our customers don't need? So we think criti more critically about that than we ever have. Because as you get bigger, there are just different ways people collaborate and you need different levels of permissions and you need things that maybe our average customer doesn't need. So it's really important to just know your persona and or know your couple different personas. And instead of just broadly stating that you are your customer, like I always did, you've got to yeah. say, well, we are this customer out of our four customers. Yeah. I'd be curious to learn how you you had already built a successful business. It was a service oriented business. And then you make a decision to start a new thing that is a product um, mm -hmm. and a SaaS type business. What, what maybe if you can, and it's been a while, so it might be difficult, but if you can think back to those early days where you needed to learn how to build a different type of company and maybe like how to level up as a leader, as you found product market fit and as you were finding yourself needing to add team relatively rapidly and you've got a larger organization than what you had before, what did you learn about being a leader of a, of a startup versus a leader of like a, a service oriented business and things like that? So when you're selling a product, it's you're a lot more constrained than you are when you're selling a service. When you're selling a service, it's very easy for you to bend and say that you'll do whatever the customer wants. And so like if you are a landscaper, for instance, and all you do is cut grass, but somebody's like, hey, can you move my lawn chairs between the backyard and clean those off? You're like, sure, I've got extra time and I'll take your extra $50 and let me just do that. But when you're selling a product and you've got I don't know, a ball and all it does is bounce. And someone's like, hey, could could this like split open midair and become a Frisbee? You're like, oh, like I wish I could help you, but like it, it just yeah. doesn't do that. Yeah. And so selling a product, there is these built-in constraints that you just have to accept. And so I had for years had this service business of my video production company. And then I had a service business of this consulting firm. And when I went to sell the product, I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. These things will just like move off the shelf because the price is so low. You know, mm -hmm. instead of it being a $10,000 service, it's a $100 a month product. So I'll, I must be able to sell thousands of these. It was actually a lot harder to sell the product. Mm -hmm. You had to sell the product in a very different way. And you had to tee up exactly what your product would solve for people in a mm. demo or in your marketing materials to yeah. lead them to your product as the perfect solution. Whereas yeah. in a service, it's almost more consultative to figure out exactly what somebody wants. And then you just tailor your proposal to exactly what they want. It's easier yeah. to sell. Yeah. And so the sales part was the hardest thing for me is learning how do we actually tee up people that want to sell themselves on our product. Mm -hmm. I know that you, it seems like at least that you've adopted a lot of the kind of the, the tent poles that people think of when they think of like a B2B SaaS kind of playbook around content marketing and some events and stuff like that. I'd love to get into that a little bit, but when you were thinking back again to those early, your earliest customers, to your point, maybe the, maybe the website doesn't look as, as polished as it does now. And maybe the product itself is a little bit more limited. Do you remember how you got over the hump and got some of those early customers? Yeah, if you go to the Wayback Machine or whatever it is in the archives, you can look at our 2018 website. And it was it was pretty terrible. It's just like a yeah. broken WordPress site. Yeah. The first couple customers came from my consulting business. So in month one of launching the software company, I hosted a party at a hotel and invited 100 businesses and the press and tried to make this big idea, a big fanfare out of it. And yeah. so we got a handful of orders coming through through that. And so I had this, this circle of people that could give me testimonials and be warm referrals. And I was able to put them on the website. So that would be my first tip is if you're starting from zero 
find some people, even if you're giving your thing away for free, find some people that can be testimonials, case studies, whatever, because then you can build them into your sales demos. You can put them on your website. You can get them to write reviews on the software platforms. And that really does create a lot of authority to have third party validation like that. So that was the beginning. Then we launched on Product Hunt. So if you if you haven't heard of that, it's a website of like applications. And that was a great experience for just getting feedback. It's a really critical early adopter audience. And we opened up the, the thing with no credit card and just said, sign up, try it, let us know what you think. So again, that early feedback was really useful because it told us like what people didn't like, where they dropped off in, in the, the process. And then I emailed everyone on my LinkedIn. So that was like (laughs) the spam mode. But it was it was a all through all through email. Like I downloaded the list. I sent one off emails to everybody on on my LinkedIn. And I was asking for, you know, do you know anyone in this space? Do you know anyone that does this work as part of their job? Like, again, I just wanted to talk to people. Talking to people over and over again is what helped me craft the demos. The, yeah. the first like demo presentation. And then we would put those, the, the request a demo thing up on our website. We started running ads and yeah. it was the, those first cold traffic coming through ads through my first demos that really showed me, okay, this can work for strangers. Let's scale this. That's awesome. In terms of what you were paying attention. So, I mean, first of all, awesome that you were willing to, a lot of my students, a lot of founders I talk to are very afraid to like, flip the switch, especially like on something like a product hunt where there's tastemakers and potential investors and they're terrified of, of the negative, negative feedback or whatever it is. But I, I know, I would imagine by now you've got some pretty sophisticated instrumentation in terms of like tracking retention and doing cohorts and all that kind of stuff. But like back in the day, how were you getting feedback about, so you get some people to come in, they're either customers or people from product hunt or people from your paid ads or whatever it is. What were you looking at to see Hey, have we nailed this? Or um, some iteration work is necessary. How did you use, what kind of data were you looking at to inform product iteration decisions? Was it all qualitative? Like, how, how did you go about that in the early days? The only data I looked at was Stripe getting credit card charges that were <laughs> successful. It, yeah. was, it was like like year one of yeah. the business, we made almost zero product changes or iterations. Like we had this prototype, this this early version. And I thought, okay, if I can get 25 people to pay for this, then I should be able to get 250. I just got to go find them. And so year one was all about sales and marketing. And we made almost no changes to the product. It was just, are we getting charges? And then are those charges lasting? So I, I signed up for tool profit. Well, it's like a bare metrics or something like that. And I was watching our average revenue per customer and our monthly MRR increasing and and looking at some of those basic metrics. And I was looking at what we're spending on Facebook and Instagram ads because we weren't advertising anywhere else. So they must be coming from there. And so it was a pretty simple equation of like, we're spending this much to get customers. They're paying this much on average, takes us this many months to pay off my credit card. And let's keep growing that. (laughs) When did you start implementing some of the other so I, I mean, just your website is just a wealth of content at this point around how to do all of this stuff. Like, when did you when did you start to make investments in in that? And what maybe have you learned about kind of content marketing as a as an important tool for B two B SaaS type businesses? The investments in content marketing started the year before Trainual. So I had oh. through selling my consulting services, I had started this newsletter where I was recommending little hacks and tips for people to make their business more efficient. And so after sending that newsletter for a couple years, I packaged it all together. I made this tiny little book called 100 Hacks to Improve Your Business, self-published it, and I started sending it out to prospects on LinkedIn and asking them to meet up and saying, I promise there's a dozen things in this book that could, could, you know, improve your margins or whatever. And so, so I was doing content marketing. I was writing. I had gotten a column with Inc. magazine uh, on their website, Inc.com. So I was writing four times a month in, in this column. And so I knew that thought leadership was important to set me up as a consultant. Mm-hmm. And so that just really translated into Trainual. So it was something that we kept doing in that first year, shooting a ton of videos. All of our ads were just me or my brother walking down the street or sitting in our conference room, just talking about problems that people have in their business. Because 
we were experiencing the same problems or I had in my, my last company. And so I think our marketing was just approachable and authentic and it was experience based instead of theoretical. And it resonated with people that, okay, this is, they're experiencing some growth or some success. So let me see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The, a lot of the channels that you would use for distribution for that kind of stuff tend to perform better, I think, with, with people as the, as the voice versus like the company. And it seems like you've like, there's a, there's a personal branding kind of founder aspect to it. Was that deliberate? Is that something that you recommend other founders do is kind of like, if you are even remotely willing to be on camera or whatever it is that you should, you should do that. And if so, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think people like to follow people and connect with people more so than logos. And when you mentioned E-Myth and I, I, I held up the book, I remember before Trainual started thinking about the most influential business people that had written certain books or whatever that someday I aspired to be like that. And I think of the people just as much as I think of, of the book. And yeah. so I thought in starting Trainual, if I can provide some of that, those lessons and share what I'm doing along the way, it's only going to help Trainual and that people would probably li- rather listen to me talk than a Trainual ad. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've continued to do that. I know you've written an, another, at least one other book, yeah. even since doing this. You also have been pretty disciplined about, and you mentioned like the newsletter kind of being an early manifestation of this, although it's more of like a one-way channel, but community building seems to be a big piece of this too. Like you've got a private Slack group, you've got that summit that you put together. Yeah. What have you learned maybe about using community as, is it primarily a, a marketing channel? Is it primarily a customer success channel? How do you think about community in the, in the kind of the, the broad scheme of things? I think it's primarily a customer success channel, but then by the customers having so much fun, it attracts other people. It's like if you've got a really cool club or restaurant with a line outside, like Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be a line outside if it wasn't a lot of fun on the inside. And so we try to make those events and the Slack groups and the like monthly calls that I host and the podcast, we try to make them fun on the inside so that people want to talk about them and tell their friends. And so the, the natural next step is, is yes, it becomes an acquisition thing, but it's so long tail. We, we, we don't see the direct results of all the investment we make on the website for potentially years. But like we have a content team of, of four writers and just churning out stuff on our website, editorial stuff. It's not about trainual. It's like, it's, we, we, it's like a small business publication. Um, We have, a, a, a like a full-time person running my podcast, which has episodes every single day. We have a full-time video producer that's just shooting speaking events and, and putting out content. And all of that I think is super long tail, but, but it snowballs. And anyone that sees our content today and thinks, oh, that's a good idea. I should start doing webinars or something. We've, we've got tens of thousands of pieces of content already done that hopefully will be a longer term advantage for us. Yeah. When you think about like, uh, so something like the summit, I know that that, I think, I think it was David Sachs that I heard first mention this idea of like, he will advise his, especially his B2B companies to, to bake that into their marketing calendar. And the biggest fear is that like, all right, nobody's going to like, is anybody actually going to come to this thing? How did you, like, how long have you been doing that? And like, what did, what have you learned about putting events like that together? Now you've got a pretty large community, but like, especially how did you maybe overcome that fear to the degree that you had it? Like, what did you do? Kind of fear that no one's going to come, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a big, that's a big ask. That's different yeah. than show up for, listen to my podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the first, this is our fourth year doing it, our fourth time doing it. The first year we did two events. And the first event that we ever did was actually in partnership with Gary Vaynerchuk's company at the time, Empathy Wines. He had launched this wine brand and we thought, training is all about empathy and having empathy for the experience people are going through. So we held an event called training with empathy and he had some of his people there as speakers. We had some of our people. And then we brought in big name authors like Kim Scott from radical candor. And, Mm -hmm. and we, we did this just afternoon summit, digital, all virtual, and we had 1200 people or something show up. And so that was a great first effort. And so the, the, that fall when we wanted to do our own event and we didn't have a partner, we had to start our, our own event called playbook. We needed a a big name speaker. And so we went through all the like shark tank people and who, who are people that someone would recognize. We got Damon John to, to speak. 
And so he came in as a keynote speaker. We packed the day of just awesome executives at brand, all these consumer type brands that you'd recognize talking about the operational problems that they solve in their businesses. And it was like a way for people that are building businesses to just be a fly on the wall of how other brands are doing things. And it's mm-hmm. so casual. Nothing, nothing about it is pre-prepared with slides and everything. It's just conversations, almost like a live podcast episodes. And yeah. so that second event, we got 2,500 people to show up. And yeah. so then our, the following year we got 5,000. Now this is going to be our fourth event. We're shooting for 10,000. We'll see, wow. we'll see how, how it goes, but it, it builds over time. I would imagine part of it in, in, in your specific case is like those folks are used to, you're used to seeing those folks talk about just vision, pursuing your dreams, what's your, what are your morning routines and habits and things like, like not, and, and not that there's anything wrong with any of that kind of stuff, but I would imagine even, even in a casual kind of setup, you're digging into like brass tacks here's how we actually get stuff done, which they don't get to see very often. I have to imagine that's part of your quote secret sauce for lack of a better word. Yeah, absolutely. And, and because we're so entrenched in operations and process and how companies work, that's all we're thinking about. So that's what we're talking about. And so getting to hear someone from Uber talk about how they uh, tactically found drivers in the first couple cities and how they started their grassroots marketing efforts or hearing someone from Strava talk about like their hiring process and the benefits that they offer if you work there and how they retain their employees or Mm -hmm. hearing someone from founder of, of Bombas, the sock company talking about their like refund policy and why they instituted this and how it works for retention and upsells. It's gold to hear some of that stuff for the products that we use every day. So it's, it's been so much fun to run this. I bet. I bet. You mentioned kind of retention and upselling and things like that. We have some mutual friends that have been like the, I guess the growth space for lack of a better word. And that's a very common like lever that people, people talk about either you call it product led growth or whatever it is with a platform like this though, where everything is internal and not just internal, but like critical to the business. You could argue like it's a source of IP. You could argue it's yeah. a source of value. Like a lot of those levers aren't necessarily available to you. How do, how do you think about using the product to drive growth given some of the constraints that your specific business model maybe has? Well, there's some ways that we can do it. And you make a great point because a lot of what people put in the platform is like their secret sauce, yeah. but they're also using it sometimes to train their candidates that are applying to work at the business or to train their contractors or vendors that work at other businesses or to train volunteers or the seasonal employees. And so we have seen some virality from people that are working with several businesses and see our brand from something that's shared externally so that we get a little bit of that, but not as much as if it wasn't their secret sauce and they're just blasting it out. The the other kind of viral loops in the product, I guess, other than just the assignments to people that work at your company and shift to a different company is really, we have a whole template library. You can browse our templates through the website. And so for business communities, networking groups or business growth groups, we partner with a lot of those to create free content that you can just sign up and automatically preload your account with different vertical industries and, and trade associations, that, that's been a, a lever for us to be able to say, okay, here is process type things that are pretty standardized in your industry yeah. or they're standardized for a certain product you might use. Like yeah. how do you send a, an email with HubSpot or how do you process payroll with Gusto? These are things that aren't just your secret sauce, but they apply to a ton of businesses. And so if we yeah. can create that kind of reusable content and make it available externally, then that that becomes something other people can promote. Well, it also seems like it also increases the utility of the product itself too. And this, from the standpoint of like we talked about, like getting getting stuff documented is a challenge. And so like, if I can tap into a library of, th- of thousands at this point of templates, either to as a starting point, or I bet in a lot of cases, they're like, oh, this one's better than what I was going to put down. I bet that's a hugely valuable kind of, tool in and of itself from a retention perspective too. So you're able to pick off multiple pieces there. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, systems fits into kind of a large, it's, it's a part of a larger kind of thing, I guess, of operations or management or things like that. And from what I have seen, it seems like you're a pretty deliberate 
manager, leader, sort of in general. I know you brought in like a head of HR very, very early. You seem to be very thoughtful about team and company building and things like that. Like, what are some of the philosophies, I guess, that you have brought to Trainual as you've been trying to build it about, I guess, from like a broader kind of management or leadership kind of standpoint? I think the overarching thing is realizing that your employees have so many choices for where they work that they don't have to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's my job to make this a place that people love being. And so before I started Trainual, when I was doing the consulting work, one of the things that I did to onboard myself into all my clients' businesses was I would sit down and do these confidential interviews with all their employees. Mm-hmm. And so I focused on businesses with typically five to 50 employees. That's who I was working with. And when I got started, so I would do five to 50 confidential interviews. And so over the course of working with 150 companies or so, I did something like 2000 of these one-on-one interviews. And so I got to see these themes over and over and over again of people that either didn't feel appreciated, they didn't feel listened to, they didn't feel compensated correctly. They felt like they were kept in the dark about certain decisions. They felt like they didn't have a growth path. They felt like they had unclear responsibilities and expectations from the company. They didn't know how they were being measured. All these things surfaced over and over again. And so in starting Trainual, I wanted to be really intentional and deliberate about doing it right. Setting it up right from the beginning, setting clear expectations, creating growth paths, having benefits, paying fairly, transparently communicating on the company metrics, giving everybody a scorecard. And so I I really credit my consulting business and all of my clients' flaws with my (laughs) ability to to set up a set it up right. But yeah, it's been super intentional. And so we we brought on our head of people at she was number fifteen, but she was consulting for us when we had nine people. And and so from from very early, it was how do we represent Trainual's culture and brand to the outside world. How do we set up a really great interview process that even people that get declined say, thank you, that was like one of the best experiences. I hope you'll consider me for the next job. Uh, We were setting that up from the beginning. I think it's paid off. Are there any of those levers that you pull? I mean, obviously, in in a certain sense, like your your brand is just like the sum of all of the things that you do and your culture is the sum of all the things you do. But are there any, were there any, strategies, any initiatives that you implemented that you, as you think back, had the biggest impact in terms of like, if you were to advise somebody who wants to be a little bit more intentional about culture building or team building that would give them the biggest bang for their buck, so to speak? Since the beginning, I guess we always had a once a week, all hands kind of thing. At the beginning, we were just five people around a table and then it was standing all in the bullpen and then it extended to Zoom to incorporate remote people. And I think that that proactive communication about here's what's going on in the business across every department this week. Here's the decisions that we're making. Here's the things that we're thinking about that we'd love you to weigh in on. That creates this predictability where people know they're going to get information and they, their minds don't have to wander and they don't think that the company is doing things behind my back or, or whatever. So that would be one. The proactive cadence of having career conversations with people every 90 days, I think mm. has been since the beginning, something we've done, but really important saying, yeah. you know, will, do you want the same job two years from now? Do you think you're paid fairly? Like, what could I be doing better to to support you to make work even better? Just any of those conversations. I feel like if you aren't giving your people a open vent, a chance yeah. to just let their feedback out, then it's bottled up and it, it could it could blow up and you don't yeah. want that. And so it, I'd be curious about that second one, like in coaching conversations I've had with founders and things like that, we talk about, you mentioned Kim Scott and she talks about like the three the three conversations and like past, present, future and things like that. How the, the biggest piece of pushback I've gotten when I've advised something like that has been fear that their aspirations don't fit with the aspirations of the company in terms of like, there's a hierarchy. There's only a certain number. Like if you're in marketing, what, what what's your career goal? I want to be in charge of marketing, right? Like if there's only going to be one person in charge of marketing and things like that. And so they, they're, they're worried that they will preemptively 
consciously or subconsciously like close doors for people and force them? Like, how do you, how do you navigate those conversations well in a way that kind of marries what their aspirations are and how you can help them in their role and what they want to become with what Tranual needs to become? You don't want to suppress someone's aspirations. And if they're capped and they've got a ceiling, then they're going to, you're going to find that out one way or the next. And so do you want to be involved in that conversation or do you want them to just put in their notice? Like, I think the better scenario is that you have that conversation and they say, oh, I would love to be a director of marketing, but Trainual already has a director of marketing. And then we can have a conversation that's, well, what do you need to do to become a director of marketing, even if it's somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And let's help you get there so that you can take your next role 18 months from now. And in the meantime, we'll still get tons of value out of you as a person. And we're happy to have you here. In that 18 months, what if your director of marketing leaves and now the role opens up? Or what if you split off marketing into now communications and paid and you've got a person that really is great on the branding communication side and your existing hire wants to go more into the growth trajectory? There's so many building blocks and it's like a game of Tetris of how people move around in an org. And I think you just need to have regular open communication about somebody's aspirations because then you think of them for another position. You're like, oh, maybe they would be good over over here on this team. Or maybe we're opening up a new market and they could be the, the leader in that market. Those things can happen. But if you never have that conversation because you're afraid to have it, they'll find the next job. Yeah. They'll just, someone else will have it with them. That makes sense. What about for you? I mean, how have you, how have you managed to not scale yourself, but grow like not everybody that starts a uh, especially like a startup as soon as you take investors especially and things like that not everybody gets to go on the whole journey some people they make it to first base some people make it to second uh, they bring in a more execution minded or growth growth type ceo or things like that how have you managed to level yourself up as the organization has grown so that you're still the right guy I think first it was an exposure to to bigger companies. So when I was consulting and working with companies that were 20, 30 million dollar companies, some of them that had 200, 300 employees on the upper scale, that was not my norm, but on the upper scale, I'd see how they're operating and think, okay, well, I could, if I can advise this CEO, I could probably do that someday. So, <laughs> and so part of it was just like having those examples to, that, that gave me the confidence. And then it's always having groups, peer groups or mentors. So I, for the longest time, was an EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. I'm in YPO now. When I first got started in the software world, I joined SAS Academy, this group by Dan Martell that was really helpful for me. And it just, it put me in a room with other founders at similar stages, going through similar problems, And I would always be able to find people in that room that are 50 employees ahead of me or 10 million in revenue ahead of me. And you look at what they're doing and you take notes. And so I think at at every stage, every year, I'm reconsidering, like, do I have the right peer groups? Do I have the right mentors? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the one of the constant temptations in, in for a SaaS type business is moving upstream. And you said that you've learned that you are, you said you used to think that your customer was five to 500. And now you think it's actually like maybe 10 to a hundred, but you know, especially again, you start getting investors in the door and things like that. You want to keep growing. It's always there. That carrot is always there. How do you maintain the discipline, the fortitude, whatever it is to say, listen, like, I know that that's over there. I know that that could potentially be really lucrative but we're, we're 10 to hundred or five to 500. Like this is, this is our sweet spot. This is what we're going to do. How do you, how do you think about that? How do you navigate that? It's different for every business. So I don't want to give a blanket statement here because a lot of businesses do go up market and a lot of it is not just the temptation or the forcefulness of their investors or something, but it's because they want to. And that were, those were their aspirations from the beginning, but they had to start somewhere. Yeah. The, approach that we've had has been to focus on this small growing entrepreneurial business because that's where the most delegation and and transfer of roles and responsibilities is happening. Whereas when you go from a company that's 250 employees to 2000 employees, a lot of times it's just replicating the same thing 
in different markets, just more of the same with more bureaucracy and red tape and all that. (laughs) And so my passion is for the 95% of businesses that are grinding through this and struggling and trying to live a balanced life. And I know that our product can help them do that. I've never worked at big companies. I don't, I've never, I've never wanted to support the fortune 1000 or whatever. And so the conviction is really about like, who is the person we're trying to help? Who's the the person we're trying to solve? Now it's not to say we couldn't also solve the problem for like slightly mid market companies or shift eventually, but it just takes the product maturing and being there. And I think you have to know which customer you want to work with and then build for them and not, not let, certain customers drag you in any certain direction. Got it. Well, along those lines, then what, what do the next five years look like for Trainual? Where do you see things headed, either product perspective or what, what's, what, what are you most excited about in the coming years? The goal is for your playbook to write itself. So when, well, you know, the, the, when, when I ask anybody, like, do you want one of these for your business? Everybody says yes. Like, yeah, that it would be amazing. All of the knowledge of your business is in your business already. You already do what you do. People have this in their heads. And so our challenge is just to make it so easy to capture and collect and record all that information that it is centralized somewhere and you don't even have to think about it. So that's what we're working toward is the the playbook that writes itself. And you have a unique set of anonymized training data, theoretically, to train something to theoretically do something like that. That's that's really fascinating. That's exciting. Yeah. That's really, really cool. <laughs> Follow along. Uh, wow. Fascinating. Cool, man. Well, I want to respect your time. This has been really, really interesting for folks that want to learn more about Trainal. Where of all of the various resources that you could point people to, where do you, where do you send them? What's most helpful? I would just say, go to our homepage, just trainual.com. However you want to spell it. We own all the domains. And then you can find me on LinkedIn or Instagram is where I hang out. So just at Chris Ronzio. Very cool. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Congrats on on everything that you've managed to build so far and very excited to, to see what that next evolution looks like. That's really cool. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization and how Manifold Advisory might be able to help, visit us at manifold.group advisory. And if you're looking for a truly value-added investment partner, visit us at manifold.group ventures. If you found this episode helpful, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much as always for listening. We'll see you next time.